and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am here with my co-host, Chris Bell. Hey, Desmond. Hi, Chris. What's up? I've kept Elixir in, as usual. Good, good. That's good to hear. It sounds like you're uh, bunged up. Bunged up, is that a British saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I mean, it means that you have a cold. <laughs> Nasal. I probably could have guessed that since that's the only thing that is like different about me. But yeah, I'm a little under the weather from a wedding this weekend. I flew back to DC for a cousin's wedding, which was a lot of fun. But you know, you go for a couple of days and then it catches up to you all at once. Oh, damn. So no elixir in this weekend. Not a lot of elixir in. Although, um, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but several people have been commenting on some of the stuff we've been talking about the last week or two. I did see. Part- yeah, particularly with... Uh, scheduling. Um, a lot of people have had some insights about how to have timeouts on your gen servers, um, how to clean them up after they've been alive for a certain amount of time. Yeah, definitely. And I like the pattern of setting a handle timeout in your init that um, I think it's a handle timeout callback that says if this thing hasn't received any messages in so much time, then just kill it. I think that's a pretty clean way of doing it. So I'll probably investigate that going forward. Nice, yeah. And uh, thank you to everyone who kind of jumped into the GitHub issues. Um, we're always happy to hear people kind of getting involved and giving us suggestions as well. So, Oh, yeah. And we also opened a channel on the Elixir Slack. That's right. So feel free to join the conversation there as well. That probably makes more sense than a GitHub issue. Yeah, that's probably true, actually. Yeah. So we hope to see you there. But today, we have a very special guest joining us. Yes, we do. So. We have Paul Schoenfelder uh, joining us. Paul is a longtime Elixir developer, uh, currently at Dockyard, and has been doing a lot of work in the deployment area. So welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, guys. So uh, for those not familiar with who Paul is, you might know him better by his GitHub uh, name. Actually, is it just your internet name? Uh, I mean, it's what I use generally everywhere unless I can't because somebody else took it for some reason. Personal brand, everyone. Personal brand, very important. Right. Um, so you might know Paul by uh, Bitwalker. Um, and Paul is the author of many, many libraries. I actually, like, just before the show, wanted to make sure that I, I got the full gamut of all of the libraries <laughs> that you've written, Paul. Um, so Distillery, Timex, uh, Swarm, Libcluster, just a whole host of different things and i'm probably missing out a lot like xrm and just lots of uh odd projects here and there yeah for sure but some very uh influential projects in the community i would say as well yeah i mean a lot of it accidentally for sure i mean i mean it's not like i ever set out to make a popular project necessarily but because i was involved in the community really early on i think you know there's a lot missing and so as I was working on projects professionally, like I had to write out libraries to do the things I was trying to accomplish and boom, you know, you run into things like swarm or libcluster or libgraph <laughs> was a, a fairly recent one. I mean, distillery itself was more like how I got into Erlang Elixir in the first place because I was really interested in releases and hot upgrades and it sort of evolved from there, you know. But yeah, very much accidental popularity in that in that sense. Well, uh, I think it goes without saying that we're all pretty happy that you accidentally created a lot of these libraries. So, 
uh, thank you for doing that. Like I am Absolutely. a big user of most of your libraries, so and they definitely help our business and allow us to deploy software and do date times and things like that. So uh, thanks for that. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun for sure working on all these projects. It's you know at times it's a handful to try and maintain all this <laughs> because there's just too many things happening all the time, but. Uh, you know, working at Dockyard the past year has helped a great deal. Things have kind of uh, slowed down recently because I've been working on uh, client projects. So I haven't been able to focus as much time on uh, open source stuff the last like month or two, plus with the move. So that was a bit chaotic, but things are going to ramp up here again real soon. So particularly around releases, that's kind of my primary focus. Yeah, what, what's been taking up, uh, like wh which library has been taking up most of your time if you if you had to kind of quantify it? Uh, for sure in the past six months uh, to year, I've been putting a lot of my time into distillery uh, in the 2.0 release that I've been preparing for a while. Uh, because a lot of that is preparation for getting releases into the core tooling. That stalled somewhat because of the configuration discussion that's been going on uh, in the community recently. Stalled in the sense that we really need like a good solution there, I feel, uh, before trying to build out releases in the core tools. Because Distillery exists and we have solutions for that in place already there, right? Uh, and configuration being so deeply intertwined with releases, it's really hard to break them apart from my perspective. Uh, so I was able to convince Jose of that, I believe, and by proxy, the core team, but it remains to be seen how the conversation around configuration goes, I think. Um, but, you know, there's, I'm expecting progress there this summer. But other than distillery, uh, swarm and Libcluster, Libgraph, those were kind of the main ones I was spending time on prior or, you know, concurrently with, but before I really got delved into the distillery at uh, the 2.0 branch. So um, Swarm, you know, is sort of like a distributed, eventually consistent process group, uh, process registry, really. But you can do like distributed state with it. And then, uh, you know, Libcluster, a lot of people are familiar with because it's sort of the default way it seems like people are doing clustering right now. Um, and then LibGraph was written out of sort of like a need to rewrite uh, DiGraph to not use ads because uh, and when I, I don't, some people say ads, some people say ETS. I'm talking about Erlang term storage. I just call it ads, but uh, you know, because it uses three tables uh, behind the scenes, if you're building a lot of graphs in memory, you hit the max table limit pretty fast. Uh, and so I wanted to rewrite that as a pure functional data structure, and that's what the graph is. So those are the big ones for sure in the past year, I guess, that I've been spending time on. So how much time do you get to spend on this? You mentioned you were doing more work on client projects recently. Uh, what's the life of an open source developer like? 75% <laughs> of my year basically is open source and 25% is client projects. And that varies timing-wise on when that happens. It's obviously mm -hmm. dependent on how Dockyard is resourced uh, across projects. If they have a client that needs my expertise for whatever reason, then uh, they'll come to me and, and try and schedule time. So it's pretty flexible in that sense. But yeah, most of my time is 
wake up in the morning, catch up on where I left off the previous day or previous you know week, and uh, work through issues or new features that I'm trying to build out. A lot of time spent experimenting with things that I'm trying to figure out better solutions for. Configuration is a big one. And also in terms of deployment, just more generally, like we have OTP releases that I've spent, you know, a great deal of my time working on the tooling for, but also exploring alternatives to OTP releases. Uh, the one that I spent a lot of time on was trying to figure out how to build like a, a static build of the runtime to bundle up into like a single executable effectively. And I went pretty far down that rabbit hole. Interestingly enough, back in the day, I don't know how long that was now, maybe, I want to say 10 years, but it feels like maybe that's too long. But uh, Erlang itself actually had a way to compile a static executable uh, with an Erlang application for deployment. I think it was an experiment that Joe Armstrong actually wrote and was maintaining for a while. But ultimately, it became too difficult to maintain that feature and so they deprecated it and then eventually removed it. But there were traces in OTP itself for a while past the point where you couldn't really use it anymore, but they finally removed everything. So I had to go back through the Git history to try and figure out you know, what it had required. Unfortunately, the Git history on GitHub doesn't go far enough back. So I, <laughs> I couldn't actually find the entire history of that feature. But I tried to kind of re-implement that to a degree, but I, I hit some dead ends. It, it, it's too complicated with what they've added to OTP since. They've been doing releases in Erlang for a long time. I presume since they've had Erlang, they've been doing releases. Why is it such a challenge in Elixir? Like, why do we all have such a hard time with this? I think ultimately the reason why releases are so difficult right now has to be because of configuration. There are some rough edges, but a lot of that I've sort of addressed in the 2.0 release I was talking about. The configuration presents such a thorn in the side of a lot of people. And part of the reason why is not just the mechanics of doing runtime configuration, like setting environment variables or whatever. It's, you know, kind of what has been going on in the, in the config discussion on like Elixir forum or whatever. This idea of blending compile time and runtime configuration into your app the abuse of application M for configuration. It's like basically application M is just a big table of globals if you want to think of it that way. And so anytime you're introducing global state, you're making it more difficult to configure things. When you have OTP applications that depend on things in application M being set when they start to do whatever, maybe connect to a database or something, that pattern is not good. Uh, and, and the reason why it's not good is because your app can't get a chance to configure that one before it starts. And so you run into the situation where you need to hack around the fact that you need to dynamically update the configuration when you're booting your app. So that's where that replace OS bars thing comes from. Um, it's basically just a dirty hack to make sure that we can inject environment variables into the sys.config file uh, in order to make sure that that configuration is present when those applications start. And the trying to make mixed config work in the same environment, we run into a similar problem where we can bring the mixed config file into the release. This actually works in the master branch of distillery right now, but you still run into a problem where you can change things in that config file that are actually compile time configuration options. And so don't actually take effect. Or you can be doing things like invoking Git or something. And the, that's that pattern presents a lot of problems towards making that, that configuration setup work properly. 
Um, so just for the benefit of the listeners out there, Paul is kind of describing some of the some of the conversation that's been going on in the community around configuration. I think we touched on it in a previous show as well. But so Paul, I read your replies just recently about to that proposal that Jose put together where you weren't a big fan of this kind of on-boot block that was being like kind of proposed there. Right. Uh, me and I went to Jose uh, to talk about the release tooling. We talked periodically on IRC about it because obviously it heavily involves coordination with the uh, core team to make this stuff go into the core tools eventually. And I came to him to tell him that I felt like configuration was going to be an obstacle and we needed to try and figure out a solution. So I spitballed some ideas and that sort of started this discussion around how we could maybe make mixed config work in releases. The proposal that Jose posted was sort of like where we landed, I guess, to a degree, like something that gets us partway there. It's not perfect, but you know, this idea of like we can make existing apps easier to configure with maybe some work done on the application developer side, right? Mm. Um, avoiding using, you know, mixing the compile time and run time stuff in there as much as possible. Yeah, I, I, I kind of wanted to comment on that from someone who's had some real world experience, as I'm sure you have in this as well. Like, I, I think like most of our bugs recently have been because of compile time versus runtime configuration. Yeah, it's it's a risky thing blending them together. And Absolutely. the reason is because it's very difficult to trace which style of configuration is being used by a particular app and variable, right? Like when you do config, my app, blah, you don't know whether that's being used at compile time or runtime. Now, when you run with mix, you don't notice the difference. It's irrelevant. It's basically it compiles and runs every time you do it. But with releases, obviously, you compile in advance, and then you're kind of generating that config when you boot the app. But that means that anything that's compile time config is now static, can't be changed. And that's, of course, where you run into problems. Even if with the proposal that was posted by Jose, sans the on-boot thing, we'll get there. But uh, without that, you would still have problems where you might want to change the configuration for something and it doesn't take effect. And that would be a problem. And that's why the on-boot thing uh, was sort of like a patch, a hack around that. The problem, the reason why I kind of push back about, against that is I feel like it's taking us down a path where we end up just building this tower of hacks. And I, I know Jose is not going to want to go down that path, right? Like he wants to avoid that sort of mess as much as anyone. But it definitely seemed like the way the conversation was going was sort of, and not necessarily his proposal, but more like just in general with the community feedback, it was going in a direction that where it was solving a problem that we weren't trying to necessarily solve here. From my perspective, the thing that we really wanted to solve was getting things that work today, uh, maybe with some additional effort, but sort of trying to transition us to a place where we can split compile time and runtime configuration. One thing that I wanted to talk about real quick too is I mentioned that using application M was like a bad pattern, right? Um, and a good pattern, like what you would want to move to is uh, OTP applications. Like if you're writing a library where the users of your library have control over the supervision of processes. So you expose a component that they then add to their supervision tree. If you look at something like Postgrex, this is how it actually works. The bulk of Postgrex is around connection processes. 
And those are supervised in your own supervision tree. It has like its own internal supervision tree, but it's for things that don't require user configuration. They're like caches, I think, for types and stuff like that. And so this idea of putting the power in the hands of the users of the library, and secondly, accepting arguments to those supervisors, those workers, whatever, so that you can do runtime configuration and like your application start callback rather than having to configure things statically in sys.config or via config.exs. Instead, you just you know build up whatever config structure is needed in the start callback and just pass it into the supervisor or the worker that you're trying to configure. And that is way more flexible. That would still be environmentally dependent. Like if I were configuring that in my application start, I would still have to say, use this database string and test, use this in development. Right. And that... The difference is that it puts power in your hands to be able to go fetch that configuration from wherever you need to get it, whether that is in the application M or whether it is, you know, an external service like etcd or vault, or maybe you're reading a custom init style config file or something like that, or hitting a JSON API to get some data that you need. Uh, for example, if you wanted to get, if you weren't using something like libcluster and you wanted to get all the nodes uh, in Kubernetes that are part of the cluster of your app and connect to those, or maybe Maybe use them as configuration to some process. You can just make an HTTP request out to the metadata API and get that information and pass it in as parameters, right? All that kind of work is something that you can do in your application if you have the power to do so. Mm -hmm. But it's very dependent on how your dependencies expose their configuration, right? The problem is right now we have tons of libraries that are heavily dependent on application env, which takes that power away from you because they're starting stuff in their own supervision trees that are dependent on application M. Now, if they weren't doing the parameter passing I was talking about, still use application M, but let you take control over supervision, then that would be less of a problem because you would still have control over when they started, which would mean that you could stuff whatever into the application M when you want. But I think moving away from application M as much as possible is a pattern that makes for way more flexible applications and libraries. And that's part of where I see things going eventually. I mean, that was very much the pattern in Erlang prior to Elixir being a thing. So that's the quick and dirty and what I was talking about earlier with that being bad. So if we move to a model like that, would, would, that sounds like a pretty large breaking change to Elixir in some ways. I, I know it like exists like that today, but to a ton of libraries, right? Like, would, would this have to be like a 2.0 kind of thing or would this, you know? So that's where we get into the that like transitional step, right? Like how do we deal with libraries like that that may never be updated, right? In that sense, we need something to patch that that over. And that was really where I was, where I've gone with distillery and master right now um, to make mixed config work in releases and where the proposal that Jose posted in Elixir forum came from. This idea of like, let's get something that lets people deal with those dependencies without necessarily forcing everybody's hand, right? I'm not sure what the best approach is in the future, but I do know that we have some handy things in OTP deep down in the runtime that we can leverage as tools to help us deal with it. One of those things and how I've made mixed config work and distillery is by injecting bootstrip instructions to actually evaluate the config file before everything starts. So after everything's loaded, before the applications actually start and actually need that configuration, we can evaluate the mixed config file and then you can put whatever you want in there, right? Mm. But again, we run into that compile time issue. And I think the compile time one is where we really have sort of an awkward problem. 
if it, if it was purely runtime, we had no compile time configuration, I, I don't think it would be nearly as painful of an issue as it is. And I'm not sure how to solve the compile time one. You know, I was pushing towards like maybe pushing things into mix EXS because that's sort of how we already configure the compiler and some other compile time or build time uh, options. But I'm not sure, you know, Jose pushed back against that because he didn't want to push everything in there, right? Mm. And it does feel a little awkward to make that this huge file with a bunch of these sort of mixed concerns. But having maybe a separate config file or something along those lines, I don't know. Is that under the application function you're talking about in mix? Uh, the thing that... Uh, for evaluating the config? Yeah, yeah. in the mix.exs file. Uh, or oh, the application.config module that you mentioned. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, sorry. I'm talking about, like, you said about pushing some of that stuff into the mix.exs file. Like, what? Oh, yeah, right. Where would that live in the mix.exs file? Well, if you recall from the proposal, one of the things was introducing some restrictions to, like, the import config macro, for example, which can dynamically load a config file from wherever, requiring those to be static instead, and then pushing the configuration for dynamically loading config files into mix.exs. That would be an example of how we can move some things from config.exs to mix.exs. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that that works as well for things that are more general in nature. And Jose posted a bunch of different options. There's like the MIME library. Uh, Ecto has some compile time config. Right. And and where do we put that stuff, right? Mm. Um, sorry, we'll link to that in the show notes for everyone who hasn't seen that uh, kind of proposal. Uh, it's it, it's definitely worth like reading, even if you just go down and read the the TLDR right at the bottom. Absolutely. Yeah, I would encourage everybody to look at it. that conversation has been sort of like closed in the sense that I think the core team realized that we need to step back again and kind of rethink it. But very much regaining the context, I think, for this conversation and just understanding in general the problems, reading that thread would be really beneficial. And feedback is really helpful to have. So, um, can you t- Paul, can you talk a bit about uh, like the direction of distillery? And so you're talking about this 2.0 release. Like, What are your goals with the 2.0 release? And then can you talk a bit more about how that fits into this bigger picture of bringing releases into uh, the Elixir core? Right. I think uh, my big effort with Tudardo was to try and find a solution for configuration, given that that was the biggest issue. But there are a variety of other things, um, sort of legacy cruft that I hadn't fixed when I initially wrote Distillery, mostly for expediency's sake, and for making the transition from EXRM to Distillery a little bit easier. Namely, like dealing with custom commands, uh, scripts like doing migrations and things like that. I wanted to make support for Elixir code much more native feeling, I guess. Like one of the things you need to do right now, if you want to invoke a command uh, in Elixir to do something like, say, run a migration, the syntax you have to use is actually Erlang syntax. And you have to like prefix modules with the Elixir dot, you know, because the actual beam file is that. Some of those problems were because the e-scripts that Distillery was using internally were written in Erlang, not Elixir. So I put a lot of effort into rewriting all that in Elixir instead, making the shell script infrastructure deal with that what you know better anyways, and then adding some functionality to make like evaling code or RPCing code 
uh, actually be a script that you can evaluate. Instead of having to pass in arguments and write term syntax, you just pass a string, which is basically an Elixir script. It makes it a lot easier to write like ad hoc commands to help you do stuff like health checks or whatever. That was another big piece of it. Yeah, those two things I think were the biggest ones rewriting all the documentation because the documentation had sort of been fractured. There was duplicate information. There was things that were missing. Uh, you might read an article that was relevant to what you were trying to figure out, but it was missing information because it was documented elsewhere. So trying to better link across the documentation, make it easier to kind of like flow through to find the things you want and circle back once you've gotten the information you need. Just in general, have a little bit more that's like guides that walk you through, you know, deploying to like AWS or DigitalOcean or something. The documentation effort was also another big piece of this. And so... That part of it's all been like cleaned up and mostly addressed. I'm still getting PRs for improving some of the docs. The things that I haven't yet pushed are guides for AWS um, or deploying to your own VMs. And I think those are pretty crucial to make getting started with releases feel a little more easy than it does today. Like I think there's some hesitancy, some fear even around using releases because they sound really complicated, right? We're having all these conversations in the community about these problems. And so it leaves sort of this bitter taste of like, should I really be using those right now? It sounds like they're kind of flawed. And the truth is that that's not really the case. Like there's caveats, yes, and some painful parts, but they're getting better all the time. And releases themselves are a very powerful tool in our arsenal, right? Operationally, they're much easier to use. You get some nice things like automatic remote consoles, automatic distribution, all that good stuff. And so I think in general, we want to be encouraging people to use that. And part of that is making it really super easy for beginners to just jump in and deploy something. And part of the deployment story is not just how to build a release, but how to actually get it to where you want it um, and interact with some of these services in a way that makes sense. You know, how do I deploy something to AWS that involves like a load balancer, blue green deployments or whatever? It's actually fairly easy once you understand all those pieces. But if you have to go research all that yourself, it can be really difficult to feel like it's achievable if you're brand new to all of it. Yeah, that's something that I've found when trying to figure out releases, in particular how to do hot upgrades, is there's just not a lot of documentation out there. There's a yeah. couple of blog posts, and um, you're kind of stuck. And in fact, I want to chat briefly about hot upgrades, sure. which I'm a big fan of, and I think is something that the community pushes a lot. But then there's not a lot of <laughs> how to do this, and then developers' reactions tends to be, oh, well, this is frightening. I'm just not going to worry about it. I'll just turn it off and turn it back on again. And I would like there to be a canonical blog post, and I, I guess I could write this post. But like in these situations, you could do this and it's free. You don't have to worry about restarting a supervision tree. You don't have to worry about migrating. You're in memory state. And I think that if you're not changing the shape of any data structures that your gen servers are holding, you're not al altering your supervision tree, you could do a hot upgrade for free. And even if you are altering your supervision tree, that part of it pretty much works fine. Where you might run into some pain, and I haven't actually experimented too much of this to see if it's really a problem, but if you do a bunch of refactoring where you're like changing the names of things, like the namespaces that things live under, you're almost better off just doing a clean restart at that point because it's going to have to stop a bunch of processes and start them again because it sees them as different. Is there a way of building that into the release maker itself so that it can look at your code or look at some diff between this release and that release and know, oh, hey, man, 
why don't you just turn this off and turn it back on again instead of doing an upgrade? Yeah, I mean, we could even generate hot upgrades to do that. There's instructions to restart the emulator, both soft and hard. Uh-huh. If you do the hard restart, you need to be using this program called Heart, which is bundled with the runtime that is sort of like a heartbeat. It sees whether the runtime is still up or not. And if it's not, then it reruns the start command again to make sure that it's back up. There's documentation on how to use that in the in the new docs. I think they're in the old ones too, but I went into a little bit more detail there. But general idea is that we could do that. Yes, effectively force a clean restart. The piece that's missing from that, and I'm sure that this could be written without too much effort it's been sort of like future thing for me but doing the static analysis to see what has changed Mm -hmm. from the perspective that you're talking about right like right now the app up generator that's in distillery sort of ignores what the changes actually are beyond what it has to do to generate the right instructions for the update it doesn't look to see like oh are these modules that were renamed or are they new or removed well it looks at the new or removed but we don't actually look to see what the original source of those modules were. And I'm not sure if that's easy or if it's way harder than I think it is. If we had that, then yeah, we could definitely do a warning like, oh, it looks like you've done a super heavy like nominal refactoring here. Maybe we can just do a clean restart with this upgrade. I'm not sure if that's been a pain point for people or not. It seems to me that the main benefit of stack analysis that would be worth pursuing is handling the state changes better. Mm-hmm. So if you're using a struct as internal state and you like rename a field, that could potentially be something that we could generate like a snippet to dump in the code change callback for a gen server process, for example. Say like, oh, hey, we saw that this changed. Here's a snippet you can use to actually just make that upgrade seamless for yourself. But there's limits there, right? Like we're working with ultimately a dynamic language here. And so we can't do enough stack analysis for this to be perfect. We really have to involve the user, the person doing the upgrade in that process to get some feedback. And maybe having some sort of almost guide-like walkthrough process would be interesting. See, like, hey, I identified this change. You know, were there state changes here? If so, make sure that, you know, you define this code change callback and here's how it works. And uh, make sure that you transform the state in the way that it needs to be transformed. And I think guiding people through that process more interactively might make for a much more pleasant uh, experience with building and using hot upgrades. Yeah, I mean, I think the pain point now is simply that there's a lot of unknowns and people don't understand what it's doing under the hood and what things to watch out for. And I think it's okay to push some of that on the developer and say, hey, you have to look out for these situations and be aware of it. I don't think we want to go so far as to make a hot upgrade versus a cold restart transparent because you might want to know, oh, is this going to hit my database? Is this going to do a lot of work on boot up? But I think right. giving the tools to people and and spelling out clearly these are the situations, whether the tool does that itself or there's some wiki that does this so people know yeah. would go uh, quite a long way. Yeah, I mean, the official app of Cookbook is actually a really handy reference. It goes into much more detail about what the options are for the app ups themselves, the instructions that you can use Mm -hmm. and when and how to use them. Now the app up generator is in my mind where you want to really go with this ultimately is have the app up generator bootstrap you a little bit, get you 90% of the way there. And then you just modify that file as needed to make the changes that you need to make. I think in a lot of cases, you might not even have to touch the app up necessarily. Mostly just be aware of what you need to change within your application itself to make those more seamless. 
And I think once people actually get in the habit, like you've done a few hot upgrades and you get a feel for how that works and what you need to be keeping an eye on, it becomes more and more easy every time you do it. But it very much is sort of like building up that experience, right? Like there's no way to just jump in and do hot upgrades with a really complex app if you don't have a sense for what the gotchas are. And the documentation, like you say, has always been sort of hit or miss in that regard. I mostly just was like, here's the caveats, go read the app up cookbook, you know? Um, so I think it would be remiss of me if I did not ask about Docker, as we're talking about kind of hot upgrades as well. Yeah. Um, can you give us your thoughts, first of all, on, you know, do, like how do you feel about Docker as a solution for deployment here, especially in the Elixir community? Um, I mean, I've been really fan of containerized applications when used in conjunction with an orchestrator like Kubernetes, because it just sort of came from more like an ops background. And so when building out like a continuous integration, continuous deployment solution, I've never felt that it was as easy as it was as when I started using Kubernetes with Docker. And I know there's other orchestrators out there. I don't mean to like pin it all on Kubernetes here, but um, it's the one I'm most familiar with. And in that sense, I really feel like it's a, a powerful solution. The, the change in sort of philosophy with Erlang and Elixir when involving Docker is that you sort of ditch the idea of really heavily stateful applications. Unless you are clustering and you have something like Raft where you're replicating state around the cluster so that you know you can drop nodes and bring them back up and everything just sort of continues to transparently work. But if you are running a single node or even two nodes and they have a bunch of internal state, then it becomes less desirable to just drop and bring them back up again. So you really need to rely then on a central database or something to maintain that state instead. And so that moves you away from using things like Amnesia or ETS, hot upgrades, for example. I don't necessarily see that as a problem though. It just requires a change in the way you architect your applications. The way I was using, uh, you know, Amnesia and ads, mostly ads, I have been not leaning on Amnesia too much, but using ads is sort of like a read-through cache or something. So you can optimize the performance of your application without necessarily like depending on that state being consistent all the time. You always use your source of truth as like your central database that you're reading from. That pattern works really well with Docker because you can basically just kill your containers and restart them and everything kind of just picks up where it left off. No issues. Makes it much easier to do upgrades. But if you do, um, with more state, oh, if you do that, haven't you uh, lost a lot of the benefits of an Erlang system of keeping this stuff in memory? Like then you're just doing a faster functional Rails. Yeah, I guess. But for me, there's there's definitely a lot more benefits to the language than just those things. But once the real power behind Erlang Elixir is the ease of distribution. If you've got a cluster of applications, you basically don't have to necessarily bail out on the idea of uh, distributed or on stable applications. You just use the cluster to help maintain that state. But it does mean you're introducing some new problems, right? As soon as you go distributed with state, you've got a whole new world of pain if you're not thinking about it up front. But I think for a lot of applications, like distributed state is a problem that you shouldn't necessarily have. I'm 
I'm speaking very broadly here, and I'm, I'm not sure that that's maybe the best thing <laughs> to do in this regard, but it is a problem I think people create from themselves a little bit too early necessarily in, in their process. I think starting with something monolithic without distribution, trying to keep most of your state in a database and, and keeping each of the instances sort of stateless, even if they're maintaining state internally, like a cache that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of benefits of the runtime there and you know the use of ads without overcomplicating your architecture. Yeah, I, I just want to chime in on that. Like that's exactly what we've done here. And like I think we've had tremendous benefits from doing it without too many of the headaches of distributed state as you're kind of alluding to there. And like you still get a ton of benefit with a lot of um, from the language as well. And you, you can still yeah. take you can't. Yeah, there's some things you're missing out on, but it still feels like you're, you know, taking most of the advantage of this great language and ecosystem as well. And one of the applications that I wrote and worked on was running under Kubernetes and Docker and using distributed state. That was basically where Swarm came from, actually. Um, the process registry part of it was what I needed. And that's effectively distributed state. It's a database of the processes in the cluster. And so that worked fine. I mean, there were definitely bumps in the road while I was trying to figure things out, right? But it, Docker in and of itself wasn't a problem. The problem was that I hadn't fully thought through the implications of if my members of the cluster can come and go at any time, how do I write my application in a way that can be resilient in the face of that? And that's why it's more complicated. Like It's not necessarily something you want to just jump into without really thinking through the implications because there are problems there. And it requires you to really think through all the failure modes of your application. And that's why I think trying to move away from trying to take advantage of things like amnesia or distribution uh, until you know that that's what you need. And some applications are just, they need that. Uh, Like in my case, the application I was working on needed that in order to really be successful. And I I just want to make sure that people don't feel like Docker is somehow an obstacle there. It just means that you really do need to think from a perspective of like, none of these nodes matter individually. They can come and go. They might die for any reason. And anytime you're doing distribution, you really need to be thinking that way anyways. Even if you're using like VMs where you're really treating each instance like it's a pet. Because the reality of cloud infrastructure these days, and even in a data center, is that those VMs could die at any time. You don't know when. Hardware failure, whatever. Network failure. You have to, as soon as you go distributed, you have to be aware of those problems and how your application is going to deal with them. Definitely. I have uh, one more question before we start to wrap things up um, sure. about rolling releases into mix. And I've read a couple of posts that suggest a command like mix build release, and then that builds your release for production, but it would also build a release for development when you're updating your code. So how would that work if I have my app running and I change some piece of code and it notices a code change, will it then build a new release under the hood when I try to refresh the page? And if so, won't that take a while? I mean, building a release when you're not like archiving it, building the tarball is actually really fast. Okay. And that's building a whole new release to begin with. The reality is that uh, Distillery for a while now has had like this dev mode idea, which is where the compiled application in your mixed project you know, dumps all the beams and build or whatever. And so when we build a 
release, instead of copying all those beam files, we just symlink to them instead. And so if you run mix compile again and just restart your app, it's updated. You don't have to rebuild the release or anything. And we have like code reloaders and things like that. Uh, you know, Phoenix has got one, for example. I don't see any particular reason why we couldn't have the tooling, you know, detect changes to those beam files and restart either the whole process, the whole release, or those individual modules just doing hot code loading right there. Yeah, I mean, that was something that I considered a big part of this, right, is that if we get this into the core tooling, releases really have to be transparently, but very much part of both the dev and prod infrastructure. You want to close that gap right now. We have a big sort of almost chasm between how things work in dev and how they work in a release and prod. And my goal was to make it so that there was really no difference. Uh, the way your app runs in dev is not significantly different from how it runs in prod. You know, there's realities of how you do stuff in dev that aren't necessarily going to apply to prod, but there shouldn't be this like stumbling block every time you start building a release. You're like, oh, my app is broken. I don't know why. Oftentimes that's because, you know, configuration isn't happening the way they thought because of the issues that we already discussed. So to answer your question again, I, I think we would probably reuse a lot of what's actually already there to make that work. We would not be building a whole new release every time. And it would be transparent. We would still be leveraging things like Mix Run, you know, to make sure that under the covers, it's actually building out enough of the release metadata to be able to use that part of OTP's infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, I wonder at that point if release becomes the wrong word for all of this, and it gets a little confusing if you think, right. well, why do I have to build a release if I'm just developing? So that's something you could work out. I don't know if you want to use like a Yeah, I mean, or... that ultimately I think would be where we'd want to get from this. Like if you're really into knowing the internals of OTP, you would be able to dig in and find out like, oh, we're using OTP releases for this. Mm -hmm. But yeah, getting away from this idea of building this unique thing when you want to run your app. It would just be kind of transparent. Like mix run would just use releases under the covers. And if you do mix compile dash dash release or something, you know, it generates a tarball and you know where to find it or it tells you where to find it. You know, the idea being like releases are more the discussion around the tarball that you then copy into production. So it becomes a more generic term instead of referring necessarily to the OTP release concepts. Mm -hmm. I do think there's value in leveraging OTP releases and making that clear in the, the code and the documentation around it. Like, hey, this is what we're using if you're interested. But beyond that, not taking it too much further. Yeah. And I mean, something that I would like to see is a little more clarity around what role does versioning play in production releases? Because yeah. that is a huge mm -hmm. issue if you're doing hot upgrades. It's less of an issue if you're doing restarts, but some way of baking that in, whether we say, all right, your app is generated with this version string in the mix file. What we really want to do is read it from a version text file that you update or that gets updated as part yeah. of your release script, whatever. And really uh, making the tool smart enough about that so that the developer doesn't have to worry about it. Yeah, and, and that would be interesting to see maybe how that, that changes in the future. Maybe there's some helpers and, and mix to make that a little easier to build out. You know, you can effectively do it now mm -hmm. by, you know, in your project definition module before that is evaluated, you know, run a command to like fetch the version from a version file or from Git or whatever. 
and then just dump that into the atom used by the mix file. But yeah, that's still very much like a manual process, and it's not immediately obvious to people new to the language. Yeah. Which I think is sort of the recurring theme here is there's a lot of power that you have to make things work fairly transparently, but none of it is necessarily really obvious out of the box. Totally. I didn't learn about dumping arbitrary code in the mix file until quite a while after I was using Elixir, just because it never occurred to me to even try that. And then when I actually did it the first time, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I can get all this dynamic information in here for versioning or whatever, and I don't have to do it some other way. Once I figured that out, it just opened a whole Pandora's box for me. And I think that's something that we need to maybe be a little bit more explicit about up front with people. It's like, hey, this is an Elixir script. You can do whatever in here that you could do in a regular you know, Elixir module or whatever. Totally. I think that's a, a good note to end on about... There is a lot of power here. I think we could all do a better job of surfacing that and telling people what that power is and what sorts of things they should do with it. So, Definitely. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, you've done a lot of great work Thanks in the community, and we're looking forward to more work that you're going to do. Is there any way that we can, not necessarily me and Chris, but people in the community can help out with some of this work? You know, for anybody that's interested, definitely reach out to me. Slack has been a little bit problematic for me because I don't necessarily check it often enough. And so sometimes messages get lost because there's like limited history in there. But email works, opening up GitHub issues, just ask questions, uh, hitting me up on Twitter or IRC. All those avenues of communication are good for reaching out to me. And, you know, I get asked periodically by people like, hey, are you interested in PR for such and such? The answer is yes. Yes. If it's a bigger thing, maybe make sure that we talk about it first, because I don't want people to necessarily dive in and do a whole bunch of work and then me have to be like, uh, sorry. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm very much interested in feedback from the community, like asking questions so I can improve the documentation, PRs to improve the documentation, and even new features I'm open to. Distillery, I would say, like maybe hold off on new feature <laughs> stuff, because my goal is to really move most of distillery into the core tools and either deprecate or distillery or make it sort of like enhancements. And at that point, feature additions would be nice to have. Yeah. Any of my other projects, if anybody's interested in becoming a committer on the things that I'm owning, I, I'm tight on time to be able to do maintenance and increasingly finding that I am more reliant on contributions from the community. And so if there's people looking at like new to Elixir or even been around for a while and are interested in, you know, taking over one of the projects or becoming a committer on it, definitely reach out and uh, let me know that. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, I just want to second what Desmond said as well, Paul. It's been awesome having you on the show. Um, and just thank you for everything you've been doing and all of the libraries you've been producing and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited Absolutely. personally about Distillery 2 as well, getting involved in that. Awesome. Yeah, that's great to hear. And thanks so much for having me. Hopefully, maybe sometime again in the future here, once uh, some of these things have actually taken place and the core tools have improved, then we can maybe have another conversation about the future again. Definitely. Cool. Cool. Well, uh, you could probably catch Paul at ElixirConf later this summer or early this autumn, depending on how you look at things. I think Chris and I will... Chris and I will be there, right? Are you going to be there, Chris? Tentatively. I'm still figuring it out. Okay. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be there. Maybe we'll wear some big, like, Elixir Talk hats or something. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, thanks again for joining us for another episode of Elixir Talk. My name is Desmond. And I'm Chris. That's Chris. That's Paul. 
and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks so much. Take care.